Well, listen, over these uh, next few Sundays leading up to Christmas, uh, we're going to be preparing our hearts for the season by looking again at the Christmas story that is found in Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, or your mobile device, however you get to God's Word, get to Luke chapter 2, because in just a moment we're going to go there. And by the way, once you get there, hey, guess what? You're set for the month, because we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 all month long, even into Christmas Eve. So get your Bibles ready for that. But each week, along with that story... We're going to focus in on one of the classic songs of Christmas that sings out one of the important themes of the birth of Christ. Now, as we began this morning, we began by singing the Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Now, that is a song, no doubt, you have heard and sung, I would bet, many times, but at the same time, probably you know very little about that song. Joy to the World was first published 301 years ago by a man named Isaac Watts, 301 years ago. So just think about that. What that means, and though we sing it with instruments that Isaac Watts couldn't have imagined, and we may put it in a little different stylized fashion, when you lift up your voice and sing this song in worship, not only are you joining together with the voices that are in this place, not only you at home are you joining with the people who are a part of this live stream broadcast, not only are you joining with millions of people around the world who will sing it this holiday season, but you are joining in a choir with countless believers across centuries that have sung these same words from hearts of faith. Now, this is one of the reasons why it's important for us to keep singing historic songs of worship. Because when we sing these songs, it helps us to remember that we did not just discover this Christian faith. That, in fact, we stand in a long line of faithful men and women who have gone this way before us. Same Jesus, same faith, same story, same passion to live the truth and to change the world. We are not the first in this line of faith, nor will we be the last. So here at Bethany Bible Church, we love singing a new song to the Lord. But there's also something to be said for singing an old song, too. Because these classic songs of faith help us to harmonize with generations of believers that have passed this way before us. So it's like that when we sing Joy to the World. When we sing it, we are harmonizing together with 300 years of Christian believers. Now, of course, when Isaac Watts wrote this song in 1719, it would have been considered contemporary Christian music. His songs were very popular back in the day, and as new music often is, they were also controversial. His critics said that his little ditties were not scriptural enough to be used in church services. Um, This fresh new music of Isaac Watts was quite a hot topic for debate back in the day. So today we call him a hymn writer, but in his own time, he was a cutting-edge and controversial musical artist. But aside from all of the controversy of the day, over the course of his lifetime, Isaac Watts composed more than 750 of these contemporary worship songs. Now, what's particularly interesting about this song that we sang today, Joy to the World, is that it has become one of the most famous maybe top one, two, or three Christmas songs in the English-speaking world, even though Watts never intended it as a Christmas song. 
So the next time you sing it, focus closely on the words. You will notice it makes no reference to any of the specific parts of the Christmas story. Mary, Joseph, angels, wise men, the manger, the star, Bethlehem, none of it. Watts wrote the song as a paraphrase of Psalm 98 back in the Old Testament. So you see, 1,000 years before the first Christmas morning, Psalm 98 was already singing the praises of the coming king. When the Lord of heaven himself would come and he would reveal his justice and he would remember his promise, and when he did, heaven and nature would sing. So here's what it says in Psalm 98 that Isaac Watts was paraphrasing. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Shout for joy, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. And so, Heavenly Father, we just bow our hearts before you in this moment, for we realize that in your Son, Jesus, the King has come and the King is coming. And we celebrate his first advent. We look forward to his second. And we look forward to it with joy because for us, as women and men of faith, we realize that he is coming to save and to bring justice and to pour out mercy and to fulfill all of your promises. And so together with the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the oceans that are already engaged in a song of praise in progress, we join with them, heaven and nature and us. We sing to the King that has come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you see, the idea that the King was coming was not new. For centuries before Bethlehem, God's people had been waiting for him to reveal himself and to remember his promise, like Psalm 98 talked about, that set the backdrop for the story of Christmas. Now, of the four New Testament Gospels, Luke is often called the Gospel of Joy because joy is such a repeated theme in this Bible book. It's not just that Jesus has come into the world and entered into our lives, but it is the joy that has broken out and breaks out because he has come. So if you read the book of Luke, Luke's gospel begins in chapter 1 with an old man alone in the temple, and he is given a promise of joy. And it ends in the very last verse of the very last chapter with 11 men returning to Jerusalem, having seen the Lord for themselves, and it says they are full of joy. And then in the 24 chapters in between, more than any other gospel writer, Luke talks about joy. The joy that Jesus brings into the life and joy that Jesus brings into the world. So here in Luke chapter 2, let's read again 
this Christmas story of joy. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, over these weeks, we're going to focus in on different parts of the story. But today, we want to center in on the part about joy. This is the essential declaration of Christmas. It's good news that will bring great joy to all the people. Good news that brings great joy to all the people. You know, if you think about it, though, there's something interesting about that. Although the message of Christmas is, in fact, good news, it doesn't seem like everyone actually is joyful when they hear it. There are a lot of people who know that Christmas time means that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but they aren't joyful about it. In fact, it seems to me that it makes some people mad. I see people, they see a nativity scene set up somewhere where they have to see it. They file a lawsuit to have it removed. They don't seem very joyful about the message about Jesus. You can sing festive holiday songs. That doesn't bother anyone. But at least with some people, if you sing a carol about Jesus, they get really fired up. It doesn't seem to bring them joy. And there are other people. And they aren't mad about the Bethlehem story. They just feel indifferent about it. I mean, it's nothing negative for them, nothing particularly positive about it either. It just is what it is. It's just a few days to have off work, but you wouldn't call it a cause for joy. The news about Jesus born in Bethlehem brings a lot of different reactions, but it very plainly doesn't bring joy to everyone who hears it. So what are we supposed to do with that? Actually, Luke would be the first one to agree with you. This is how it has always been, he would say. While the good news of Jesus is joy that is for all the people, not everyone will get it. The news that Jesus Christ had been born in Bethlehem. When King Herod heard the news, it gave him a major case of heartburn. It was not joy for King Herod. The religious leaders of the day, they wound up being infuriated with Jesus. It wasn't joy for them. When the rich young ruler met Jesus and heard what he was calling for, Luke writes in chapter 18 that he walked away sad. It wasn't joy for him. Luke would completely agree with you. Lots of people encounter the good news about Jesus and they end up having an emotional reaction other than joy. So what do we do with that? 
Because we launched this Christmas season with the bold and audacious claim that the birth of Jesus in the backwater town of Bethlehem is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, and this is great joy to all the people, all the while knowing full well that, in fact, not everyone is happy about it. What do we do with it? I think it's important to remember that Jesus is the gift of God, and he is the gift of God. And I think we would all agree that the joy we experience in receiving any gift, no matter how great a gift or how small of a gift, the joy in that gift is powerfully affected by the need that we perceive we have for the gift. The joy that we experience in receiving a gift is in relationship to the need we feel we have for the gift. Have you ever given someone a gift? that you thought was totally cool, but when they received your gift, it was clear from their reaction, it didn't do that much for them. That's a total bummer when you do that. It's like, I thought that was the coolest gift in the world. And they're like, yeah. They didn't really perceive that it meant that much to them. On the other hand, have you ever given someone a gift that at least from your perspective was fairly simple, and yet their reaction... And the impact it seemed to have on them just blew you away. It was like you had just given them the coolest thing in the world. The joy is related to the need. I remember spending time in a very poor region of Eastern Europe when it was time to come back home, leaving behind my used shoes as a gift. I was almost embarrassed in giving it. Honestly, for me, they were kind of coming to the end of their useful life anyway and I had traipsed around in a lot of mud in them, and it meant carrying them 6,000 miles home in my suitcase. Why not just leave them for someone there who needed them? The gift that I gave was more than gently worn shoes. And yet, from the gratitude and the joy, you you might have thought that I had just given someone $10,000. It was a painfully humble gift. But based on the need, the response was great joy. I've seen people be given cans of food and a Christmas tree, and yet from the delight, you would think they just experienced the most extravagant Christmas in the history of the world. On the other hand, I have seen people who are buried in toys and gifts and money and stuff who are some of the most unhappy, unjoyful people I've ever seen. Although many gifts will be given this Christmas season, not all of them equally will bring joy to the receiver. In fact, along these lines, as a helpful public service announcement for those of you who at this moment, literally at this moment, sir, I see what you're doing on the couch. I know you're making a Christmas list right now. I can see you. It goes this way. So for those of you who are busily making lists and checking it twice for everyone in your life to get them just the perfect item, I wanted to pass along to you briefly the definitive top 10 list for the absolute worst Christmas gifts that you could possibly get this year. I'm doing this for you and for the people in your life. These are gifts that are guaranteed, no matter what you are thinking, will not pass along the joy to anyone. Just make a note of this because I know you're working on your list. So the number 10 thing, to not give cleaning products. I've tried. 
it doesn't work. So don't give cleaning products, and that would also be cleaning, some, like vacuum cleaners, any, nothing that has to do with cleaning. That will bring no joy into, into anyone's life. Am I right? Right? Yeah, okay, good. Okay, number nine, diet books. Don't give a diet book. Even if they let them get their own diet book, the bloated belly whisper. Number eight, thigh master. Wasn't a good idea then, it's not a good idea now. Really, most any exercise equipment, but definitely thigh master, no joy in that gift. Number seven, worst Christmas gift idea, laser hair growth hat. No, doesn't bring any joy. Number six, uh, worst idea, mac and cheese candy. I know it kind of sounds like a good idea, but it's a terrible idea. Don't give that. Brings no joy. Number five, worst Christmas gift idea, the Leonard Skinner. Chris, oh, look there. That's a double album. You get Leonard Skinner and 38 special Christmas album. Neither of them are good. Don't give them to anyone even if you're from the state of Tennessee. Number four, stress turkey. No one's stressed out that much. Don't get them stressed turkey. No joy. Number three, farting teddy bear. Um, yeah, no, just, no, not a good idea. Number two, uh, fruitcake. Okay, now here's what happens when we do this. So what happens is I'm going to get on Tuesday morning a, a vigorously worded letter, you, yeah, from, from someone saying, you know what, I was with you on nine of those, but in fact, I love fruitcake. That's, so your grandkids asked me to tell you this. It doesn't bring joy. Don't give it to anyone. Number one worst Christmas gift idea is the Bernie Sanders Chia Pet. No one wants this. Socialists don't want this. Nobody wants this at all. So there are certain gifts you can give, but I'm telling you, they're not going to bring joy in anyone's life. I don't know why I would ever need a teddy bear with gastrointestinal issues. I don't need Bernie Sanders with sprouts on his head on my, on my shelf, and I don't need a diet book. And if I do, I I will buy it for myself. Thank you very much. But you see, gifts, my point is, are always like this. The joy that we experience in receiving a gift, no matter how great or how small, is powerfully affected by how much we perceive we need the gift that is being given to us. So many years ago, I received a gift. Now, the item that was given to me was a used item. And yet the joy that it gave me then and the value that it still has in my life today has everything to do with who gave me the gift, what I needed, what I thought I deserved, and what I ended up getting instead. So at the time I received the gift, I was an eight-year-old boy and I was visiting Washington, D.C. with my family. This was a very exciting experience, of course. And we had the opportunity to see all kinds of cool and historic places. But on the last day of our trip, we made a stop at the Capitol and the officers of some of our congressional representatives. And as an eight-year-old boy, I can assure you, this was not the high point of the trip. But I didn't really have a choice, and so I tagged along as we visited the offices of those who represented us from back home. And we were getting a tour through our senator's office. And while I was completely uninterested in whatever the grown-ups were talking about, I did see something that did grab my attention. There was this magnificent Indian headdress. And it was on display, and it was down on a low table just about my height. And it was covered with all these feathers and beads and embroidery. And then all around the bottom of it were these white, furry, fuzzy, super soft, super cool rabbit's feet. 
And there was a whole bunch of them too. Like so many, it was almost like if one was missing, you wouldn't even notice because there were so many. And so in a moment of weakness, and and I'm not proud of this here, but in a moment of weakness right there in the office of a United States senator, I made an extremely poor choice. I grabbed one of those rabbit's feet, slipped it in my pocket, and I just kept on moving with the tour as if nothing had happened. So later that same night, at the end of an extremely long day, as I was getting ready for bed, what do you think fell out of my pocket onto the bed in full view of my parents? That white, furry, fuzzy, super soft, super cool rabbit's foot. Now, what followed was an interrogation that would have made the Department of Homeland Security proud. They sweated the truth out of me about exactly where I had gotten that furry, fuzzy, super soft, super cool rabbit's foot. And eventually, under pressure and waterboarding, I broke. And I blurted out the truth that I had stolen it from the office of a senator of the United States of America. Obviously, as a family, we considered our options, fleeing to Canada for refuge, changing our identity. But instead, my parents insisted that I bear the natural consequences of my crime. Now, with a flight to catch in the morning and no opportunity to return in person to the senator's office, I sat down at that little hotel room desk, pen in hand, and I wrote out a detailed letter of confession to my United States senator, explaining what I had done, how terribly sorry I was, and mailing it back with the white, furry, fuzzy, super soft, super cool rabbit's foot. The week after we arrived home, I received a letter in the mail, and it is to this day the only letter I have ever received from a United States senator. It said, Dear Mike, how nice to receive your prompt note explaining that you had found part of my Indian headdress in my office. It was so forthright of you to write to me so quickly and include the tale in your letter. I have included something in this letter that you may want to use someday. These are cufflinks which were given to me as I left Oregon as governor to come to Washington to serve as senator. You can see the capital on the left of the cufflink and our nation's capital, which you just visited, on the right. Thank you again for your letter. I was very pleased to receive it. Sincerely, Mark O. Hatfield, United States Senator. That was an amazingly significant gift. It was a gift that was personally given to me by a United States Senator. It has become a source of pride and joy in my life. Now, I want you to consider the facts of the case. I was a confessed thief who had brazenly stolen from a government office of a United States senator. I don't know what they typically do with such boys, but I I would certainly expect they would be punished, sternly reprimanded, probably flagged by the FBI for future surveillance for suspicious behavior. But instead, I was actually rewarded. How many other boys got that? And instead, for some crazy reason, I was actually commended. I was given something far greater than that which I tried to grab for myself. I tried to grab a white, furry, fuzzy, super soft, super cool, rabbit's foot, street value about a buck. What I was given was something of enduring value that was once worn by a governor and a United States senator. And that, my friends, is what is called grace. 
something wonderfully good that you do not deserve, something incredibly valuable that you could never hope to earn. And when your need is great and you get a gift that you could never earn, that is cause for unforgettable joy. In fact, just so you know, I'm wearing those cufflinks today. Although, to tell the story of how I received them, I must begin with a humiliating admission of guilt. But even telling that story still caused me joy to this day, and I'm proud to wear them. So, back to the story of Christmas and the original question. So, who are the ones who get the joy? Because it's good news of great joy for all the people, but not everyone gets it. So who does get the joy? Because if we pay attention, Luke is pointing us to the answer. I told you in the beginning that Luke's gospel is a gospel of joy. One of his central themes is the celebration of delight that naturally comes when people embrace God's gift of Jesus. But in telling the story, another important theme for Luke is how Jesus came to draw outsiders in. To those who are held at arm's length because of the color of their skin, because of the depth of their poverty, because of their unsavory past, their lack of religion or their lack of status, their gender, their stigma, to those who never could have hoped to have a seat at the kingdom table on their own, Jesus made a place for them. Luke's gospel is a story of how Jesus came to bring rebels home, to extend value to those most easily discarded, to give honor to those accustomed to shame, to bring outsiders in. And when someone comes along and gives you what would have been impossible on your own, when you need it and you know it, and when you get it and when you weren't expecting it, when you get it and you didn't deserve it, that is when unbridled joy then becomes a natural expression of your life. Now, at this point, we're only in the second chapter of Luke, but already we can look back and see how this theme of surprising joy has been unfolding in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter one, the story begins with an old woman named Elizabeth and her devoted husband, Zachariah, and they are good people, and they are godly people, we're told, but Elizabeth, she is the picture of sorrow. Because, you see, Elizabeth could never bear children. Now, that's a sorrowful experience in any time, any culture, but especially in a culture and a time that measured the worth of a woman almost exclusively by her ability to bear children. A barren woman was the opposite of joy. A barren woman was the embodiment of sorrow, of a life unfulfilled, of longings never realized. More than once, the scriptures talk about a childless woman in this way, one just like Elizabeth. For instance, Isaiah 54, verse 1, sing, O childless woman, you who have never given birth, break into loud and joyful song. And so Luke's gospel begins with a portrait of a childless woman who is the picture of sorrow. In chapter 1 and verse 13, the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. 
He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Although you believe this day had already passed you by, although you believe this opportunity was already gone, not only are you going to have a child, but you're going to have a son, and you're going to have a son of enduring legacy that will be part of your name. You see, when your need is great, and you know that your need is great, but it's a need you stopped dreaming for a long time ago, and suddenly you receive it, then life becomes an experience of spontaneous joy, just like with Elizabeth and Zechariah, where the story starts. The introduction of Elizabeth is immediately followed by the story of a young girl. I think you know her story. She was a poor peasant from Nazareth. And though she is an unmarried young girl, she is discovered to be pregnant. So if Elizabeth is the picture of sorrow, you see, then Mary, well, in her world, she would have been the picture of shame. And yet in this child that this unmarried young woman is carrying, which we would expect to be the cause for the greatest enduring humiliation and scandal in her life, it is turned upside down and this young girl is promised blessing and honor through this child, not only to her, but to all peoples. So chapter 1 and verse 42, it says, Blessed are you among young women, Mary, and blessed is the child you will bear. Blessed are you who has believed what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior because he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The mighty one has done great things for me. You see, when your life is lowly and when your reputation is shame, but you are given a name of honor, life becomes an experience for you of spontaneous joy. Then finally in Luke chapter 2, the baby arrives and the announcement comes to the shepherds who are watching over their flocks out in the fields at night. And understand now these are not just guys that are working the night shift, but these are the absolute lowest of the working poor. Necessary to the economy, but despised nonetheless for what they do. The shepherds in the field, they are the pictures of the outsiders. They are uncultured, they are smelly, they are irreligious, uneducated. They are those on whom to keep an eye. And yet to these, the announcement comes. Luke chapter 2 and verse 10, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. To all the people. You see, already consistently it's this theme of joy. To the woman of sorrow, it will be a time of joy. To the woman of shame, it will be a time of joy. To those who are outsiders and despised, it is great joy. So who gets the joy? Well, the joy is for all people, but some people are going to grasp a hold of that joy more easily than others. I think it's safe to say that people who don't think they need a gift will find it hard finding joy even when it's offered them. People who think that they can earn it on their own. The ones who feel like they have it all together, like they're good enough without anyone else's help. Ones like these will have a really hard time understanding the joy of this celebration. It's not to say that the rich can't understand the joy. It just may be much harder for them. Kind of like a camel going through the eye of a needle. 
It's not to say that the powerful can't embrace the joy. It may just be harder for them because of how assured they are of their own self-sufficiency. It's not to say that the religious can't experience the joy. It may be just much harder for them because of how accustomed they are to think in terms of their own hard-earned goodness. Some people get the joy more easily than others. We know this celebration like the back of our hand, but sometimes I wonder how much we feel the joy. I was preaching in Brooklyn, New York, at a friend of mine's church, Edwin Cologne, who has his own story of coming out of drug addiction from his early teens. But he pastors in the heart of Brooklyn, a church that's called the Recovery House of Worship. Meet down in a basement. The upstairs has been damaged by fire. But two or three hundred people pack in there. Every single person who's in the church is either personally coming out of addiction or has been immersed in a family from it. It's called Recovery House of Worship. We sang simply some of the same songs that we would sing here. But as I sat on the front row with my friend, Pastor Edwin, the songs from the people behind us, it felt like it was coming over me like ocean waves. They sang so much differently than we typically do, and I'm including myself. And I said to Edwin, I said, you know what that sound is? That's the song of the redeemed. And they sing like they know it. Like they know they need it and it means something. I think we sing the same songs. I don't know that we always sing it with the same joy and abandon. Because I'm not sure we're as convinced honestly now that we need it so much. The joy that Jesus Christ brings into the world is joy to those who know that they are desperately in need. When you know that your need is great and when you are given a great gift beyond what you could ever hope for, that is always an experience of joy. So to the lowly who need to be lifted, to the guilty who need to be forgiven, to the broken who need to be healed, for the bound who need to be liberated, to the powerless who need justice, to those who are held at arm's length, to those who know they don't belong, to those who desperately know that they have a need and obvious they could never earn it or deserve it, it's to people like that, it is to people like us that Christmas means joy. And unless you see it like that, the best you could hope for is holiday happy. So I do hope that all of you get some unforgettable Christmas gifts this year. Maybe you'll get a few goofy ones, maybe some practical ones. I hope not cleaning supplies. But if you're fortunate, maybe this year you might get one. And it might be something extravagant. It might be something incredibly simple. But maybe it would be something everyone wishes they had. Maybe it would mean nothing to anyone else. But if you're blessed, this year you may receive one gift that is a lifetime treasure because of what it means to you. Jesus is the gift of God. A special delivery of unbreakable joy and not just momentary experiences of happy, but deep down unbreakable singing in the rain kind of uncorked delight that God is good and life is good and his plans for me for my future are even better. 
Jesus is God's gift of joy. Now listen, I don't know where you're listening to me from today. I don't know where you're watching today from. You may be around the, you may be around the corner, you may be around the world, but I know that Jesus is God's gift for you. And if you've never received God's gift, why would you not receive it today? It's absolutely free. It's a gift. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to deserve it, earn it, pay it back. You simply receive that God freely sent his son, Jesus. Not only just to walk a mile in our shoes, not just to point us away, but to die on the cross as the sacrifice for our sins that if we would only trust in him and in that plan, he would forgive us fully, he would make us family forever, and he would fill us by the Holy Spirit for all of life and all of eternity to come. And it's free for the taking. If you've never received that gift, why would you not receive it today? Because when you realize the gift and you receive the gift, that means joy. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Because what that means is where once there was a curse, now there is a blessing. Where once there was shame in our life, he's now given us honor. Where there once was sorrow, now there's joy. And when you get that, not only does heaven and nature sing, Not only fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains are repeating the sounding joy, but we are with it as well because we understand that the king has come. And it's for those of us who have the eyes to see, who have the hearts to receive it, this is the song that we sing. Joy to the world because the Lord has come and he's come to me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your indescribable gift that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, through space and time across the span of the universe, that not only we might know that you love us, but that you would meet our need. God, I, I pray that you would break our hearts in such a way that we could experience joy again. Or we would just admit that most of us here, we struggle with receiving the joy because we've forgotten how desperately we need your indescribable gift. Our need was great. Our need was desperate. Not only did you meet our need, but you super supplied our need. Grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, the King of heaven who has come. And heaven and nature is singing the song, and I pray that this Christmas season from the depths of our heart that we'd sing it as well, filled with joy. Because in Jesus, the Lord has come. Thank you, Jesus, for your indescribable gift.